You are listening to episode 207 of This is Type 1. Today, we have Patricia Daker on the podcast, owner and founder of Better Diabetes Life. Patricia is an RN and a board-certified nurse coach and the author of the Better Diabetes Life five-step program for exploring personal barriers to wellness, wholeness, and change. Patricia, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Tell me a little bit more about who you are and the story of your diagnosis. Well, I think the intro got the highlights of my career, but I've been a nurse for over almost 40 years. I guess it's coming up on 40. And I've been I've had three different sort of jumps in nursing, a bedside career in mostly in the ER. I spent 17 years in healthcare IT and I'm board certified in nursing informatics. And in 2017, I think, yeah, I started this uh adventure to help bring this other aspect of diabetes that I felt like was a big gap, which is better diabetes life. And I created this program so people could learn some things that I never found in the doctor's office. This side, and I'll tell you more about that. But I felt like there was a big gap in what people were being offered. And it was a struggle for me. And I wanted to help fill that gap. So my diagnosis story and one of the old ones, I wasn't a childhood diagnosis. I was actually diagnosed at age 26. I was working nights in a level one trauma center ER, crazy busy schedule, all the things that you would hear about that you would expect an ER nurse to be like. And I really just didn't notice all the symptoms. I was okay that I dropped a couple pounds. I wasn't complaining. And, you know, I working nights, I worked 7P to 7A. and you're tired all the time anyway. And it was busy. So you all often didn't get a break when you wanted one. So when you did, you were guzzling down something. And same thing with meeting your, you know, your bathroom needs. You put everybody else first. You're like, oh my God, I haven't peed in however long, right? So all those classic things, and I had seen it for years. So my first year and a half, I worked on a floor. It was a medicine floor. So everybody had, you know, not everybody, but a large number of patients had diabetes. Then I was in medical ICU for three and a half years. And so it was DKA, new onset, stroke, heart attack, all the insults, dialysis, all the stuff that we see from the complications of diabetes. And then in the ER, the same thing I saw every day, whether it was someone had a hypoglycemic episode and got in a car accident or fell or a new child that was diagnosed or just it was everywhere all around me. It was ne- it never crossed my mind. And so I guess the final sort of thing that pushed me over the edge was the fatigue. I was so tired. And I really, I saw one of my um, primary care doctors and I'm like, I think I have chronic fatigue syndrome because I'm just bone tired. And that, that opened the door. I ended up following up with him and we did some fasting labs and my fasting glucose was 140. And I'm like, eh, must have been a mistake. And then we, uh, you know, we, um, this was years. So this was in 1991. And he's like, well, next time you're in the ER, check your blood sugar after you eat something and see what it is. Okay, no problem. 300s, you know, and I'm like, so I did what any smart nurse would do. I starved myself and I exercised and I did anything I possibly could do to make the numbers be in the range that I wanted the numbers to be in, right? Wait, so even with a finger stick of 300, you're like, your brain didn't let you think it was diabetes? Mm-mm, nope. I'm like, I must have a tumor, Some anything but that. So if you go from sort of the traditional 
what we know, it's family, right? It runs in families. You're diagnosed as a kid. I wasn't overweight. I wasn't the type two profile. And really at that time, I didn't understand that you could get type one older. I mean, maybe I saw it, but it just wasn't the textbook cookie cutter presentation. So I'm one of seven. I have 20 or 30 cousins. My mom's one of seven. Now, even now, as we move forward, I have the night, my daughter's the 19th grandchild. There's like 27 great grandchildren now. There's not any diabetes in the bunch. I am the only one. So it just didn't fit, you know, and explained all the symptoms away in my brain. So this 300 thing had to be like a fluke. Yeah. So we'll talk, I can transition a little bit into that, but it was denial and I did it perfectly. Yeah. Uh, It seems like it was just a perfect storm of your workplace plus all the symptoms and like seeing it everywhere else. And then just, it's also the messaging of the time where it was, this is juvenile diabetes and they've stopped calling it juvenile because like half of all the new ones are adults and we just can't get away with saying this happens in kids anymore. Exactly. And so even I saw my PCPA, I went to my primary guy. He's like, well... I don't know, maybe you're just going through a stage and I don't want to be really aggressive. Let's monitor it. So they started me on some oral hypoglycemics, micronase, I think at the time, and which kind of worked because that drug stimulates your pancreas to produce more insulin, right? So I was still in that honeymoon stage. So that's how that, that's a mechanism of action of that drug. So there's different types, but so I was like, oh, cool. I'll just take these pills. I'll be good. So then I was popping the pills, you know, like maybe I'll take two. Right. So anyway, I, I eventually, I was still getting tired. It was a fatigue. And I'm like, I think I need to go get a second opinion. So I went to see an endocrinologist and for, for the time he was pretty ahead of his time because he actually did some antibody tests. And he told me, he's like, you're not insulin dependent yet, but you will be. Mm. So, and that was what started. And so on July 5th of 1991, on a Friday, I drove to my doctor and I was tired. I was on the freeway and I knew I was on the freeway and I knew I was going to 80, but I really just wanted to close my eyes, you know? And when I got there, I'm like, okay, I don't care. I don't care if it's needles. I don't care if it's insulin. I don't care. I need to feel better. And so he's like, well, we'll get you into the diabetes education center next week and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you do realize that had you spoken to me on the phone two days ago and you had a patient in the ER to give some insulin to, you would have not batted an eye that I was going to be administering it because I did it all the time. I said, the only difference is it's myself. And I said, I don't want to wait till next week. I'm just like, I'm too tired. So he agreed. And we started just with some long acting, I think NPH or something at a low dose just to kind of get something else in my system. But yeah, so I took my first shot of insulin all by myself in my house. I lived alone and I was the patient. (laughs) Wow. So you've already touched a little bit on it, but can you talk more about how medical professionals miss symptoms in themselves Mm -hmm. despite all this extensive training you you go through? Yeah. So you never think it's you. So I've, I've written a couple, I think I wrote a blog somewhere and I definitely have spoken about it, but both sides of the needle, like I was on the other side. I was the triage nurse looking at you, thinking in my head. Like, it's just easy to project or, or to dissociate. So I'm the caregiver, you're the patient. I'm over here, you're over there, which is a very underlying and horrible something that happens in, in the medical community. Even as a nurse, 
I really believed in my heart of hearts that people with diabetes ended up in the ER or or in the hospital because of some failure on their own. If they would have done better, it's very arrogant and it's a very prevalent attitude. I still see it in the place today. And I will just tell you, God gifted me with a lesson to learn the other way, right? So I understand something now that I never could have, which again, that's probably the seed that was planted for what I do now. It just, going back to your question about healthcare providers, one, you just never think it's you, right? It's just you're, you're removed from it. And we're really good at blaming it on other things. So, um, and it scared me, to be honest. Like, so fear is a good, like, scary, ugly thing. I'm staying away from that, right? Which is very common, I think, too, in anybody with a chronic illness. Nobody wants it. And so you back up from it. I guess there is a lot of truth to the statement that doctors are the worst patients. Oh, yes. And nurses, probably nurses are worse than doctors, right? Like, it's just hard because your role is not to be needy. Your role is to be the caretaker, the fixer, the one who has the answers. And here you are not able to A, see it in yourself or B, do something about it. Like you just, I didn't want to go there. Did you find yourself fighting the diagnosis? Yeah. And I think I'll I'll fast forward a little bit. So the fight became for two reasons. One, I expected I should just be able to do it easily. I was very disappointed in myself, right? You're just supposed to take the thing, check your blood sugar. And I literally have, I had, I made a chart and I charted my blood sugars because it was so ingrained. If I do a blood sugar test or I administer something, I keep a record of it. And back in the day, it was just shots. I just did shots and finger sticks. So it helped me remember, did I take the shot? What am I treating? It gave me a record of my own to do that. So that was how I sort of managed that part. So the perfectionist was the fighting part. Like I was, I just beat myself up mentally every time the number wasn't right. I hated it. Bad number was bad Patricia. And I am a recovering type A and a pleaser. I want, I want all the things to be right. And I could not do it. And I just, I wanted off. And so that fighting it afford a little bit. So I ended up three years into it going to a therapist and you can only fight so long. And then you sort of hit a wall and you're done. You have no more energy. You don't care. I just wanted it to be over. Like I can't keep doing this and I can't keep failing every day. And I can't keep feeling like, where's the answer? You know, you're seeking it. And, and I think this step again was one of my best lessons. In counseling, I learned that diabetes wasn't my problem. It was how I handled problems. And I'm a denier, right? And then we learned I was grieving, which shocked me to know in like grief. Uh, no, no, no. Nobody died. Like, what are you talking about? Right. But there's this denial, anger, bargaining, depression to acceptance. But I did lose something. I lost that girl who just got to go everywhere she wanted to without test strips and sugar and tech and copays and that whole life, right? She's gone and still makes me kind of sad. But like, that was, I had to grieve that because as long as I still wanted to be the other person, this life got really heavy and hard. And so that actually is one of the core sort of principles in a lot of my coaching is I don't think they talk about that emotional side as much. They, I think they're better now, but it was like, take the pill, do the thing, do the exercises, and you will be fine. 
And if not, there's something wrong with you. Yep. That's that's most of the messaging that I think a lot of the people we've talked to have heard. Even now, going like the the new adult diagnoses, they're not getting the right kind of emotional support from the doctor's office. Yeah. And it's atrocious. Yeah. So grief has been a really big thing for me. And once I realized it, I realized grief and I realized every stage of grief is purposeful. And it wasn't because I was broken or bad. My mind, my body, my spirit was trying to do the things. And I was saying, I'm not having this. This is not okay. Right. And so, so there's a whole lesson in learning there. And then last year I took a nine month course on trauma and, um, I never thought of trauma. Like where's the trauma? Well, trauma could be big T like working in the ER. I saw that trauma and trauma can be little T many different kinds, right? You can have emotional, psychological, all of that stuff. And if a person lost their leg, you would say that is trauma. If a person's pancreas up and moves out, right? We don't, we don't see that. And so I even imagine for kids when you were little and having to get stuck and poked and there was some trauma in there, right? They had psychological and emotional wounds. And so there's so much I can say about that. But the thing that I have found working with my clients, the number one thing, if you have been traumatized, is you have to find a place of safety. It starts with safety. I have to feel comfortable because if I'm not in a safe place, then from my neurobiology, I'm in fight or flight mode. I'm in my, I've activated my sympathetic nervous system. Cortisol, epinephrine, blood pressure goes up, vision skews in. I'm defensive. I'm reactive. I cannot learn. I cannot make long-term decisions. So, you know, this idea that I'm just stuck in this fight or flight and I'm afraid. If the first step isn't going, oh, I trust you. I'm okay. I'm safe here. It's going to be really hard to learn. It's going to be really hard to change. And it's going to be really hard to make long-term decisions of, I'm not going to eat all of that. Maybe I'll, you know what I mean? But if you're just reacting constantly. So anyway, this, this looking at my life through the lens of trauma, I'm like, wow, who knew? And, and that's one of the things working with clients are like, why didn't somebody tell me this? The other thing about trauma is that you don't have to remember a specific incident. I'm right. reading um, The Body Keeps the Score by yes. Bessel van der Kolk right now. Yes, anybody yes. who wants to read this is welcome to. We're, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's a little bit dry and more on the sciencey side, but it talks so much about how our bodies internalize the trauma and we have to let it out. But like you yes. said, we have to feel safe in order to let it out. And yeah. that's the key part. And that's that holistic. So body, mind, spirit. So if you think of body and mind, right? We talk about mental health and physical health. The only place in the world that those two things are separate are in textbooks. Because in our lived experience, it's all the same, right? Like you get nervous and your stomach gets butterflies or someone scares you and your body reacts. Like it's, they're not separate. And so that's why I really, this holistic idea of body, mind, and even spirit, like there's a side of you that's been around watching this whole show, right? And it's wise and it has gifts and tapping into some of that, which we do with the holistic sort of nurse coaching stuff. Man, you open up these doors and you're like, once you see something like that, you can't unsee it. And it just shifts everything. And so then it's not, oh, I have to do this thing I don't want to do, or I have to be this person I don't want to be. No, we got to find out how to, how to make you okay where you're at. And, and again, it starts with safety and 
So if your sympathetic nervous system is fight or flight, parasympathetic is where we need to live a lot. So I actually do meditations on Insight Timer. I'm a teacher and I do once a week, I do these guided healing meditations. And so we can do use these biohacks. You can use your physical body to shift from uh, fight or flight, your sympathetic to parasympathetic because you can't think your way there. Your mind cannot just say, oh, get in this mode. It doesn't, it's your autonomic nervous system. So you really don't have control. But through different things we do with our body and breathing is the easiest example. If you start panting really shallow and fast, you will activate your sympathetic nervous system. So we do the opposite. We do the slow, intentional, deep breathing that stimulates your vagus nerve. And when your body senses that, it's like, oh, hey, if we're breathing like this, we can shift over here into this other mode, right? Affirmations and intentions, just that I'm okay. Like right now, yes, there's stuff in the future that may happen and there's probably traumatic stuff that happened, but if I can get here and I'm just okay for a moment, my biology changes. If I can get into this parasympathetic state, my literal biology changes. My hormones, my epigenetic regulation, all of it changes. And you shift your resources from outward. So that sentinel looking for danger and who's going to hurt me and what's going to happen and worry and you know all that. Just talking about that, I can just feel my shoulders go up, right? But if we shift inward, now we have resources for dealing with inflammation, mobilizing our immune system for repair and restoration. Because no matter how well you control your diabetes, if we live with diabetes, there's some inflammation going on just because we're not always in homeostasis perfectly. There's just this extra kind of wave of life we have to ride. Our body wants to heal and repair that constantly. So the more time that we're in that repair and relax state, then the more our resources are like, oh, okay, no bears chasing me. Nothing dangerous is happening. I calm down and my resources go, oh, let's go see how our blood vessels look. Maybe we need to clean and repair. We'll get all that adrenaline and cortisol. Those levels can come down. But in the manic, manic, crazy world we live in, we're constantly comparing, competing, trying to, labeling, judging, you know, that just happens. And I think you layer diabetes on top of it. It's even more so because you're always sort of under the microscope, mm-hmm. right? So I said a lot who, there. Yeah, you did. But for our <laughs> listeners who don't know what biohacking is, can you give a brief description of what that is? Yeah, it's sort of what I just mentioned. So it's using your body to affect physical change. So the simplest one is we sleep, right? <laughs> right. Wait, sleep that, is a biohack? Think about it. You, your body goes, it shuts down. You're in, you restore, you reboot everything overnight. So biohack to me is using your body to change the physical state of yourself to improve or find more health, right? Okay. So if you go without sleep, so the opposite, it's easier to prove the opposite. If you go without sleep for how long? Not very long until you physically are ill, right? You can't move, you can't think, nothing works right. right. So that's like the most obvious. So that it's so important that our body pretty much makes us do it daily. Now with willpower, we can get out of that, but that's like the perfect parasympathetic nervous system. That's when your body's chill. Breathing is the other one. So breathing just, again, we're hacking into our autonomic nervous system to do something to shift us out of fight or flight. 
because we can't think it. So our body feels it. So our bodies are sensory organs, are constantly sensing you know, the world around us, which is good, but it's also sensing what we're thinking about. And it doesn't know the difference, right? So the more that we can give cues to our body, and so again, the easy ones are breathing, so not panting, but really full intentional breaths or even letting your shoulders, just think how good it feels to relax your shoulders. You feel this physical like, ah, right? That is your nervous system shifting. It's shifting. It's getting out of that embracing to be punched and ah, I'm good, right? You can I feel mean, the physical that, You change. have to like also recognize that you're in a state of tension and like yep. get your brain to be like, okay, now we need mm-hmm. to release it. Mm-hmm. Do you yeah. have any tips for how to notice those things more often so that you so can I, start biohacking? Yeah, yeah. So timers are good too. Like one thing is you could just set it on your calendar and, you know, once an hour, breathe, stretch. The other one, this is my favorite, but just putting your hands on your face. Some people it's here, some people, but this is your sort of sympathetic. It's your, I'm sorry, it's your parasympathetic. This is your vagus nerve. And just just something that feels soothing can start shifting you, right? So just sometimes if you just pause. So one is scheduling things. The other thing is I have nice little, I don't know if you can see it on my phone. It's hard to see, but I have like- be able to see it. Yeah. Can you describe it? Oh yeah. So I just have a really soothing image on my phone and my background. It's like a lake with a little face and kind of a mental, it just reminds me to go to that calm place in my mind. Yeah. Right. And the other one is passwords. So I have passwords like I am at peace. Oh, okay. Right. So these things that you do repeatedly all day. And then again, you can't see it, but if you were to see my desk right here, I have all these little reminders, right? That are literally everywhere. And I'm like, oh, be who you want to become. Okay. You know, like there's a part of me that that wants to find out how you stop all of those sticky notes in your background from becoming part of the background. (laughs) Like your eyes just glaze over the things that are there all the time. Oh, How do you do that? So I'm kind of in the habit of every once in a while when I catch myself sort of getting too busy that I have to stop and then I look around for a little something to shift me. So I've been, it's a practice, right? So I meditate a lot. And to me, meditation is just sitting outside, listening to birds. And when my busy mind gets busy, I go, oh, listen to the birds again, right? So it's sort of like um, breaking a horse. Right. Mm. You just keep the horses wanting to buck and rear, and you're like, oh no, no, come here, come here. We're gonna calm down now. And then it wants to run a little bit. Oh no, 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 come here, come here, calm down. Listen to that bird. Um, take a breath, right? It's intentional. It takes some work and training, but the more you do it, the more peaceful. I, the other thing is before you do a finger stick, right? Um, okay, I'm gonna do this. This is gonna be good. So breathing, touching, intention, reminders, and affirmation. So our brain doesn't know the difference about what we're, what's it, what it's sensing and what we're thinking. And often it's, oh my God, I did it wrong. I'm bad. So if you're thinking that, then the brain's like, oh my gosh, that's danger. And it just, it's a self-propelling, right? So if you live with diabetes, you're doing that anyway, because you're constantly monitoring, right? The system in your body. Mm-hmm. And so after, my favorite one is just, I am okay. Like sometimes I'm just, you know, I don't know what the future is going to hold. The past is over. But in this moment right now, I have technology. I have air conditioning. I'm on the phone. I'm talking to you. All the crazy stuff that we start, the what ifs. Mm -hmm. I just have to come back to it. Right now I'm okay. 
I am. And so that just adds a little bit to the the balance side and it's balance. Yeah. I think um, if you, if our listeners wanted to modify that, it would, it could also be, I am okay. But even if I'm not okay, that's okay too. Yeah. I'm just, I'm here, right? Like I'm just having this experience. And even if you're not okay, I try to find something that is okay. So I, I, I um, I'm going to butcher this story. And I think it was Deepak Chopra who told it. Don't quote me exactly, but the intent would be right. So he was talking to, he, he experienced, I think it was him. He experienced some time with a monk. He went, lived, went and lived with monks for a while and they walk around barefoot. And he's like, man, my feet are hurting. Like, how do you deal with your feet hurting? And he's like, yeah, and he agreed. Yeah, your feet do get sore. He said, but instead of focusing on the one that hurts, I focus on the relief I feel and the one that doesn't. Like when you lift your foot up. Yeah. And so we tend to hone in on the problems or the things that we perceive and the labels we give ourselves. And so even if you can find one little thing, just for a moment, even if you're not okay physically or emotionally, like you can still find a little bit, even if it's not perfect, right? And the more you get in the habit of that, they they kind of come more naturally and it allows you to sort of navigate the hard stuff better. Yeah. Right. So it's something you have to do when you're feeling well. So it's a skill when you're not feeling well. Yep. Because we, we fall to the level of our training. We don't rise to the level of our expectations. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, so I did not things... come up with that. That's not mine. No, I love it. I love it. No, it's good. So yeah, I just, it's, it's, if you're going to live this life without insulin and you're going to have to manage it forever, if I told you for the rest of your life, you're in fight or flight mode, you have to fight, you have to race, you have to run, you have to, it's exhausting. And yeah. you at some point will hit a wall and the diabetes, you know, we call it burnout. Healthcare providers often call it non-compliance. Oh, you know, that's what that is. Think about non-compliance to me is either burnout or PTSD. Oh. So, right. Just think of, imagine I'm going to, I love analogies. So let's say you're a soldier, you're in war, you've experienced something life-threatening, diabetes is life-threatening, and when you come back, you hear a firecracker and it takes you back to that moment and you're sort of, uh. so what do, what do those folks do? They avoid the firecrackers, they stay in, they stay away from their triggers. With diabetes, we have to deal with our trigger every day multiple times, if that's your trigger, right? And so, you know, it's just this, and so if you, if you are triggered by your illness, you're going to avoid it, right? Or you're going to deal with it under duress and under feeling like a victim. And, you know, it's just, you don't want to, but you have to. So that's why I, I just saw a like really clear parallel between what you're just talking about here, where our triggers are our illnesses and what uh, Dr. Vanderkolk talks about, where if you're a kid in a house and your abuser is your parent then you have to figure that out in a much difficult, more difficult way. So that was just a very clear parallel yeah. right there. Yeah, think about it. And just even for kids, they've grown up thinking that's normal to be yeah. judged. I probably shouldn't, I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to be really specific, but I talked to a healthcare professional who was type one. And this person's belief was that if the numbers were all okay, the life was okay. That that was the only thing. Like there wasn't any, he totally didn't get the conversation you and I are having. He's like, no, the tech, once the tech gets it figured out, it's all good. I'm like, well, the tech fails and that's scary. You know, it, it, 
it's just bigger than that to me that, but I think because of the way he was brought up from a young age of that's what everybody thought and wanted him to be was good numbers that his lens, right? Our lenses and no bad people, but we all have these experiences and that's how we think or what we think normal is. Yeah. Right. And so if that's what it is, so it's interesting working with clients, they have all these different stories about what their normal is. And my job is not to say it's normal or not, but help them realize, is it serving you? Is that still true? Right. Because sometimes we have these beliefs, right. And how we believe is how we behave. Mm -hmm. Right. And so sometimes our beliefs based on our experience and how we were parented and our siblings and all the stuff, people at work, the mean kids that say stuff, all the things that we endure, we hide parts of ourselves, we fraction parts off and keep them private and we hold our emotions. So we make sure everybody else is okay. Right. There's, there's just a lot of that. Everybody does that to some extent, not just diabetes, like everybody sort of has that. But I think if you've had a chronic illness for a long time, you may experience it more so. And it can get in the way of taking good care of yourself, right? Because I don't want to, you know, I think we've all done it. I still do. If I'm getting low, I don't want anybody to know. I really don't want to be an imposition on someone, you know, that whole thing. Oh, okay. I've I've gotten way better about saying like, yeah, I have to not do the thing that we're currently doing because my blood sugar is being dumb. And I yeah. have no problem with just blaming it on my blood sugar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's like, there is this, like, I still, you know, again, we have our own baggage so that my perfectionism tendency is like, oh, I got this. I'm never, but yesterday, I'll just tell you, right. I, I Yesterday, diabetes got the point. I did not. I caved. So I wasn't feeling well. It was a roller coaster. I literally, it was Mother's Day and I laid on the couch all day because that's what I needed to do. And like, right. You just have to say, taking a knee on this one. Like I, it's, I can't do all the other things today. This is what I have to do. And then I guess giving yourself grace and permission not to beat yourself up. That's been my journey of not feeling guilt and shame. Yeah. And I think in the book that you're reading too, shame is another big player from trauma. It right? is. Yeah. There's, yeah. So there's this, and you think about it too, growing up with something where everybody wants you to be okay. So they're okay. Right. So you have to do all the things. So I'm not scared. Right. It puts a lot of pressure on people. And that's sort of traumatic. And then you're like, oh, I wasn't always okay. And they did have to take me to the hospital or I got more than my siblings got or, you know, all the stories. And there's that shame that I should have done better or different. That's a hard, hard one to unpeel, right? Yeah. That, that can be very, but once you realize it's shame and not that you're a bad, weak person, one of my favorite things, and you asked again about these mindfulness things. The pause, it always starts with the pause. You have to disrupt, which is, you know, scheduling or having something and you stop. And with intention and desire, you go, I'm, sh- I'm switching gears, right? I'm noticing, I'm remembering like those shameful thoughts, those guilty thoughts, you recognize them. We actually can explore them in some fun ways with coaching, but they're actual little parts of your personality that have served you very well, right? They've yep. They've borne the burden of things that you didn't want to deal with every day. And so kind of befriending some of those aspects can be really healing too. Did you happen to go through Shirzard Shamin's uh, positive intelligence training? Because I haven't, no. He calls those pieces of yourself the saboteurs. And like you said, they 
they serve very specific purposes in your life. And like they did protect you at some point. And so they want to keep protecting you in the way that they know how to protect you. But long term, Mm -hmm. how they protect you really doesn't help. So you have to learn how to become friends with them. Yeah. So becoming friends. So that's, that's that compassion piece. So you hear a lot about it in wholeness and wellness and holistic, but, and I can tell you my little story about that. So I am deathly afraid of snakes. Hate them. Can't, they're just creepy. Don't bring one by me. Like I see it in the water. If I'm in a lake, I'm getting out. Like I just, they're creepy. They scare me. And so I've, I've made the analogy that getting a diabetes diagnosis was like someone handed me a snake. And they're like, here you go, keep that. Here's what it likes to eat. Here's how you feed it. Here's where you keep it. Do this, feed this, pay for this pet food, blah, blah, blah. You'll be good, right? Well, here's me with this snake at arm's length. Like, I don't want to touch that thing at all. I don't want it anywhere near me. And, and your so, hand is glued to it. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's going to bite me and it can stick out and it can hurt me. It could kill me. Like there's all this, you know, so many parallels. So that it was really fight or flight. I was in that fear mode constantly. And so- I've had to switch my mindset. So that snake with some compassion and understanding and befriending, it's now this little girl that I care of. So diabetes is not a snake. It's this little girl who's super cute, who didn't do anything wrong, but she needs help. And so my mommy nurse person, I can love on her and I can defend her. And it's such a lighter load to bear than the snake. And she's kind of comfortable and she can get on my lap and I can hold her. And that whole fight, fight, fight thing, I don't want to fight. And, you know, it's like, I just want to have happiness and wholeness and I want to have purpose in my life. I will deal with it. But I guess, you know, so, so many analogies, diabetes is like a toddler, like trying to fight a toddler into, right? But you, you have compassion, you befriend them and you see what they need. And even my little person, it's like, I see you're scared or... And just an acknowledging, thank you for keeping that fear. Thank you for holding this burden for the body, for all of us, for the collective. Even if they are the fractured, scary parts, we can still pull them back in. And that's that integrated, right? Like pulling the pieces in. Actually, two weeks ago, did a, a meditation sort of about that, of getting all your pieces and welcoming. You don't have to like them. You just have to acknowledge their purpose, mm-hmm. right? Right. So acceptance, like I don't have to. And I'll say this too. So I've, I've said this on different series before, but I love having diabetes because to me, love is being completely accepted. When I feel like I can be myself around somebody and they don't need me to be somebody different, that's what love feels like to me. That's me. And so, right? So it's like, you see me, here I am, and you accept me, warts and all. That feels like love. And I have that same relationship with diabetes. I accept it. Doesn't mean I like it all the time. Doesn't mean I wouldn't want it differently, but I accept it. And there's so much freedom in surrendering, accepting all those words. It's like, okay, well, it's not going away. So come on, let's, let's go do this. And it just, it just feels better, right? Inside emotionally from a stability, from feeling different or alone or weird or outcast, just accepting that that's part of myself. I had to learn how to love that little girl because it was too hard to hate part of myself, right? Just yeah. that's a heavy baggage. Yeah. Wow. Okay. We've had <laughs> a really good conversation about trauma and biohacking and all of that. Yes. stuff. So I want to take a hairpin left turn okay. and ask you about your ever since, because before yeah. we started recording, 
you said you have an implantable Eversense device. And yes. I have never actually, I don't think I've met anybody who has the Eversense. And I just want to know what, what do you think about it? Would you recommend it? Like, are there downsides? What's your favorites? Just tell me all the things yep. about Eversense. Yep. Okay. So as a small business owner, I have very limited options for insurance. And so I don't have a plan. I didn't at the beginning. I'm now figured out I maybe have some options for looping, but I'm not currently. And I, the last time I used CGM was years ago and it was just a hot mess. And I, did, I was like, oh, not doing that. And then as again, since leaving corporate America, I was like, I've done a lot of crazy things to navigate diabetes. And so looping just wasn't there. So this ever since is a clinical trial, right? So it's free. So I got six months of free stuff. So <laughs> I know we're on, so you can't even see it. So this one, I just had taken out. So this one has been here six months. There's like a little half centimeter incision. So you, and it's on the back of my arm. So you go in, they numb you up. They stick a little trocar is what it's called under your skin. And then they stick this little, it's kind of like the birth control things they do. Those implantable birth controls. Yeah. So they stick that. Yep. So that was there. Well, this one just died. It actually went out. And so I have this guy over here. And again, I know you can see it, but so that the device is underneath my skin, the skin heals. I can just take this thing off. This little outside part is the transmitter and it talks to my phone. Okay. So all I have to do is recharge the, the transmitter once a day for about 10 oh. minutes. And then I just okay. stick it back on. It doesn't like to get wet. So I take it off if I'm in the water showering. So usually when I shower, I just recharge it. Right. Yeah. And so then on my phone, right, I have like the grip, you know, it's this transmitter is talking to my iPhone and it's off right now because I turned my Bluetooth off because of our headphones, but <laughs> it's all good. So like, dislike, I really, really like that. It's not a stick, right? Like it's just on all the time. I plop it on there. What I've learned after doing that, I've always been a finger stick person. I test five, six times a day, whatever. I didn't realize what was going on all the time between those sticks. So it's yeah. been very informative just to, to see, like, I didn't realize what, how I spiked when I spiked. So anyway, it's just, it's just been a good set of information that I've changed some of my dosing. I've made some different decisions. I like that. And I like the trend. So yesterday when I wasn't feeling great, I was able to see like, oh, I'm 90 and headed south quickly. I need to go start sipping on something. Right. So it, otherwise I was just 90 and I always, before it was just a finger stick. You're like, what does that mean? Like if I'm heading up, I don't want to eat, treat it. So that's been wonderful. The procedure, not my favorite. So it's a poke, they numb you up. It's a needle and then it's a poke to get it out. And then we moved it to another arm. So it's two times a year, right? It's about six months. That's it, right? You're, you've got one little, they don't even put a stitch in it. They just tape it. So it's real small. Oh, So it's just like half a centimeter. And so they put a steri strip over it, which I've already gotten mine off, but it doesn't loop. And I don't know that they have a lot of plans for that, to be honest. I, I really, I guess the other thing is I've tried to reach out to their marketing team and like, hey, let's talk about this. You guys can film me. I'll be your guinea pig. And I haven't, haven't heard back from them. So, okay, you know, that's all right. But it's permanent. It's with you, right? And so when it, when it went out, it just all of a sudden said sensor fail. Oh, so that means, you know, you're going back on finger sticks, which is okay. And you still do need to do finger sticks to calibrate it. And there's a lot of people that are dissatisfied with that. But 
you know, it's interstitial fluid and glucose, and you're trying to keep those in balance. Sure, you have to still stick your finger a couple of times, but gosh, what you're getting in between and the trending. And to me, that it wasn't a replacement for finger sticks. It was peace of mind. Yeah. Right. You're paying for peace of mind of kind of knowing. So they, when this one went out, they let me extend the trial for another six months. I'm like, six more months of free stuff. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. And then I, so right now I'm on Omnipod and then I'm planning on going on the Dexcom seven or six, whichever one it is later this year, as soon as this guy's out, but I'm always up for anything. I love trying the new stuff. I'm techie. I'm like, sign me up. I'll, I'll play. I'll try. Well, hopefully by the time your current Eversense runs out, maybe the, the Omnipod will be looped in with the Dexcom G7. Yeah, it's supposed to, or, or any of them, because I know it's with G6, it, it loops, right? Yeah, the yeah, Omnipod yeah. Um, yeah. Dash, I think, loops with the, the G6, but there's... No, because no, no? I, I was on Dash and I had to upgrade to 5 to, to be able to Oh, loop. Omnipod 5, right. Yeah, yeah. So the, I'm on the, I just upgraded to the 5, which doesn't work on an iPhone. Did you know? <laughs> uh, I was companies, like, work together, please. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, and then it's like with great with your, you know, cellular device. And then you get in the fine print and it's like Android cellular device. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, it's all good. I'll figure it out. But I was like, dang, I want the one when Mm -hmm. I'm back when I was diagnosed, I'm like, okay, I'll get on a pump when it's all one stick and it does it all together. Well, that lasted a few years. And then in 99, I got on my first pump and then it's like, okay, I'll get CGM, but I'm only taking one stick. And then so you got on your first pump only three years before I got on my first pump. Oh, wow. Wow. My first pump was 2002. So I was um, single, still in the hospital setting, and I was working weird hours. And so back then I was doing MDI. I took something called Ultralente. I don't even know if it's a thing anymore, but it was like the first long acting. And I, because prior to that, I was working nights and I was switch in NPH and regular. So I take NPH like in the morning if I was working days. Otherwise I do it like at nine o'clock at night. If I was working nights, like it was all over the place. But yeah, so I was doing shots and just all when I just, I did whatever I wanted to. And I I did MDI. I'm like, I'm eating a potato. I'll take some insulin, right? I'm, so I was cool with that. My medical brethren thought I was a hot mess. They're like, no, no, no. You have to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner at these times. What are you doing? What are you doing? I'm like, this works. So, but in 99, they were like, you know what? You really should try the pump. And I'm like, oh God, I'm single. Nobody's going to want to date me. I'll have this box on me. You know, just a lot of personal fear, right? And Nicole Johnson was Miss America that year. Yeah. And I saw her do it. And I'm like, you know what? She's bold enough to get up on stage, like on the Miss America pageant. Yeah, she can do it. So she was my inspiration. I'm like, I'm going to do that. And I've never Shout stopped. Shout out to Nicole. Yeah. <laughs> I, I linked in with her not too long ago on um, LinkedIn. Kind of cool. I've, yeah. So yeah, but she's, she had a big impact on my life. It's pretty cool. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't cover? I think the only thing is kind of as we talked about sort of that fight or flight, right? And you get stuck on that and we're fighting and fighting and we get to that non-compliance or that burnout phase. I think burnout is something that's not taken seriously enough because sometimes we do the best we can. We just don't have any more and our, you know, our tank is empty. So 
And we can maybe put this in the show notes, but I have a little burnout quiz and you can take it and it sort of helps you kind of know maybe where you are in the spectrum. To me, burnout has nothing to do with your numbers. It's with all the other stuff, right? Like just your ability to keep riding the horse, right? To stay in the saddle and keep playing the game. And for me, it's always about persistence and not perfection. I had to quit. I had to give up perfection. I tried and I failed. But I persistently play this game every day. I just get up and I like to make baseball analogies, but I always get up to bat and I always swing. Sometimes maybe I won't if it's a bad pitch, but I always play the game and sometimes it's a home run and sometimes it's a flub, right? Like, But I I, I always take care of that little girl. Right? I always take care of her. And so for me, this this idea of burnout, which has nothing to do with perfect body and perfect behavior. It's this other, it's like, how do you keep running? It's a marathon, right? How do you keep running this thing? And um, those are skills that are only each individual person really knows, right? Each person only knows what their story is and what what's inside, what's truly inside. And I guess, so you have to become, when you're facing burnout, your goal is to not be burned out, is to transform yourself into a person who can manage this and not get burned out, right? You have to kind of let go of some of the thoughts, ideas, beliefs, behaviors that were getting in your way of doing whatever you thought you need, whatever you want to improve on. Because it's not that people aren't smart enough. or It's often that we've got so much baggage and so much fear and shame and guilt, all that stuff kind of wrapped around us. And so you, mm-hmm. there's no place to for the rest of you to be, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, that little quiz is something people can take and um, just if you're curious, we'll link to that in the show notes. So I'll just uh, need to get the link from you. I will do that. I will do that. All right. Do you have a book recommendation? Can I do two? Of course. So that when you were talking about the book that you're reading, my other one that's on a similar note is called the myth of normal M Y T H of normal by Gabor Mate. So he's written several books. He was one of my instructors in my class last year. And um, same thing, like we all have grown up in a world that we probably didn't get what we needed and it's causing physical harm to our body. And he does a really great explanation of it from his own personal perspective. So anyway, that's a really good book just for giving yourself some grace and understanding of maybe why we are where we are. That one and is the on other my one, to be read shelf behind me. Yeah. Oh, it's good. It's on my phone. So I have it on my phone because I highlight the good oh, stuff. Yeah. And then I go back later and I just review the highlights. And again, it's those pauses when I'm like, oh yeah, they said that. That's good. That one. And then I'm going to selflessly plug my own little book. So Dragonfly Lights. Okay. Yeah. It's called Dragonfly Lights, Learning About Your Perfect Purpose. And it's kind of a Disney-esque book. So it's edited. It's about this little dragonfly who flies around Earth in a spaceship. And the dragonfly is sort of a a metaphor for your soul. And your spaceship is your physical body. And my little dragonfly happens to have leaky oil, which is kind of like diabetes, like there's a, right. And so as he goes through this journey of life, there's just some fun little life lessons. And it's for kids of all ages. I've used it. It's just little one pager kind of nuggets of wisdom. And um, then I have a little companion book that goes with it. They're both on Amazon, but um, it's just a way to maybe explore some concepts because it's coloring and drawing and 
thinking about things out of your logical mind, because sometimes that's a good way to connect with these other parts of ourselves. So um, I like wrote it in a really short time. It Anyway, um, dragonflies are, are kind of my thing. You can see them, I wear them, but they're all symbols of transformation. And I believe that that's how we do better. So better diabetes life is about transformation, right? We we uncover, we become, we evolve into a version of ourselves that can find more peace and ease and comfort with or without diabetes, right? But especially with diabetes, if we could have more peace and enjoyment and purpose and passion in our life and less fight and struggle and fear, if I could do that for everybody in the world, I'd be just a little bit of that, you know, would make me a happy woman. Yeah. I love that message. Yeah. All right. Where can people find you online if they would like to connect with you? Absolutely. So my website's the easiest place, betterdiabeteslife.com. And if you scroll down to the footer of my website or all my social sites, so I have Facebook and Instagram, I write a blog, you could subscribe to a newsletter. And then again, I do it's almost every week. I have one coming up this Thursday on Insight Timer. So if you want to uh, get a little coaching insight or perspective, and then just kick back and have a really lovely guided meditations where we picture wholeness on every one of your organs and we tell our brain all the good stuff, not the bad stuff, right? And it's a uh, very healing. It's very soothing. Awesome. Okay. Well, we will link to your quiz, to the books, to your website, and to your Insight Timer profile, all uh, in the show awesome. You are awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on the show. It's been awesome talking with you. As well. Thank you. You're welcome. Remember, you control your diabetes. It doesn't control you. Hey, if you like what you're listening to on this podcast, you have to join us in the Half Dead Pancreas Club. It's my private community where you'll connect face-to-face with other people with type 1 diabetes, get personalized emotional support, and learn how to handle anything T1D throws at you. Join us over at inspiredforward.com community. I can't wait to see you there.